the realm of sensory pleasure and sensory temptation is, I mean, this is, this is Satan's skill. There's, I have no doubt that the world of pornography is filled with demonic characters. I mean, just all around it. Uh, it's uh, getting the, the, the women to be involved, the, the whole industry, the watching of it. Sensory pleasures and sensory temptation. Addictions. Anything that's, again, sensory. These, these, these draws back into bodily pleasures. Evil spirits do this. Good to be with you all. So when, when I was in medical school, this was um, almost exactly 20 years ago, I, I did my psychiatry rotation at a hospital very close to here. And uh, the, psych- the hospital is called McLean. It's, uh, it's one of the oldest psychiatric hospitals in the world, founded in 1811. And I remember getting ready for this rotation thinking, I'm not going to like psychiatry. I, I, was, um, so I had already finished my PhD at that time, and I was a little more like of a science guy, and I thought this just seemed like too fuzzy of a field. And so I went, in, went into the rotation with, with a, let's say, a, a negative predisposition towards the field. Uh, this particular hospital is an incredible place. Uh, it's a lot of very famous people go there. It's the subject of a lot of books and movies. It's an utterly fascinating place. It's it's regularly ranked the number one psychiatric hospital in the country. And so I started doing this rotation, and I, as is common in psychiatric hospitals, you engage with a lot of of patients who have schizophrenia. So schizophrenia is a disease that most people, I, I give, a, I have a, uh, in the company I work in, we, we work a lot with schizophrenia uh, from a therapeutic perspective. And every time I ask a general audience, what is schizophrenia? Everyone says multiple personalities. And it's totally wrong. It's not multiple personality disorder. Uh, it's, it gets confused uh, with a different condition. Schizophrenia is a condition where it's not multiple personalities, but it's marked by a set of what are called negative symptoms and positive symptoms. We won't get into all the details here, but one of the positive symptoms that people have are hallucinations, particularly auditory hallucinations. They tend to hear things from, they'll hear things from a wall or from a telephone pole. And so I remember uh, interviewing some schizophrenia patients and at least in McLean, they're serious enough, they're sick enough that, that these are very severe patients. And, and I, I remember the, the patients would say things like, you're terrible, they, these voices. So they're telling me about it. So I'd ask, you hear these voices, what do they say? The, the voices say things like, you're terrible, there's no hope for you, just give up, why don't you kill yourself? So you talk to one patient, then you talk to a completely different patient who doesn't even know the first one. And you hear almost the exact same thing that they hear from the first person from a radio, the second person from a telephone pole, the third person from a chair. And after a while, the, 
Even the phrases that are used are eerily identical across these patients. And it started to get my wheels turning that, that these voices don't ever say, like, good for you, or um, good job, or anything like that. They're very morbid. They're very down. They're very, very uh, accusatory. And then, of course, at, at hospitals like McLean, there's a lot of patients who have very severe depression. I mean, very severe. And I still remember, I'll never forget this, one of the most memorable uh, procedures is um, ECT, where you actually shock people. You do electroconvulsive therapy on them. And wow, I remember assisting in that. These patients are so bad that they would be willingly subjected to electricity being pumped. Oh, thank you, John. Pumped in their, in their bodies. And, and so you, you talk to them, and usually patients who have unipolar depression don't have auditory hallucinations. But you talk to them, and the lines are very similar. You're terrible. There's no hope. Just give up. Why are you trying? You're a horrible person. Maybe you should just end your life. Same basic thought lines you will find in depression patients and schizophrenia patients. So this rotation goes on, and, and I, I, within about a week or two, I'm totally engrossed. And I would, I would like, go to my rotation just like, like I, I, what am I going to learn today? What, what's this day going to be like? And I start to wonder that perhaps what these, all these patients, particularly the schizophrenic patients, are sensing is not just the ruminations of their mind, but actual, real, supernatural voices, like, like actual like demonic forces. Personally, I'm utterly convinced because the lines were so similar that you would hear from, from person to person. And so I, I came to believe, and I still believe, that these patients are effectively tuned in, the schizophrenic patients are tuned in to be able to listen to the voices of demons. So what I want us to do as we look at the next installment here in Matthew chapter 8 is to consider the role of the demonic, to consider the, the place of the demonic in our century, the 21st century. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to read verses 28 to 34. Matthew chapter 8 verses 28 to 34. When he, Jesus, had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, so that no one could pass that way. And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a good way off from them, there was a herd of many swine feeding. So the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, permit us to go away into the herd of swine, swine or pigs. And he said to them, Go. When they had come out, they went into the herd of swine. And suddenly the whole herd of swine ran violently down the steep place into the sea and perished in the water. Then those who kept them fled, and they went away into the city and told everything, including what had happened to the demon-possessed men. 
And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to depart from their region. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that our eyes would be opened. I pray that our eyes would be opened to the unseen things that animate our world, the the unclean spirits, the demons that ravage humanity, without which we simply cannot understand the world. I pray that we could approach this passage with, with fresh eyes, and, and to even look into our own hearts, into our own lives, our families, our, our, our friends, the people closest to us, and, and carefully see to discern where we might observe the activity of evil spirits. I pray that we would do this in a spirit of wisdom uh, from, from you. I pray thus that you would help us to accurately discern from your word what the Bible teaches about something so prominent in Jesus' life, which was exorcisms and casting out demons. I pray all these things in his name. Amen. Okay, so this passage here is the the culmination of the previous two uh, pericopes, the previous two sections, where Jesus had said way back in verse 18, I want us to go across the Sea of Galilee. He commanded his disciples to go to the other side. And if you remember in the first story, that winnowed out some people who didn't have the commitment to to go with Jesus to this place across the sea. And I gave a whole message on implications for discipleship there. Then as they're traveling across the, the sea, they hit this massive raging storm that nearly kills them. And Jesus is sleeping during this. And they get a glimpse into his power as Jesus stands up and stills the sea. And so now we finally get to the other side. So what's on the other side? Why has Jesus been wanting them to go to the other side? And what's the the purpose of this voyage? Of course, they meet two demon-possessed men here. I'm not going to spend too much time on the harmonization side. If you look at this account in Mark and Luke, there's only one person in that. Uh, This is discussed in the early church at length. And the consensus, which I think is reasonable, is that Mark and Luke are focusing in on the the more fierce of the two, the one who's the more prominent in the interaction. So Matthew's giving us the big picture, uh, but in Mark and Luke, they're just talking about one person. So we'll leave it at that. If you're interested, you can ask me later about that. In Matthew 4, 24 and 8, 16, it had given general descriptions of Jesus exercising demons. But this is the very first time in Matthew where we have an actual specific account of Jesus casting out demons. And in fact, this number should be important, there's going to be five stories of Jesus casting out demons in the book of Matthew. So there's five large teachings of Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is the first one. The Olivet Discourse is the last one. And this is no accident that there are five specific stories of demon possession. So I hope when you 
read the story or heard the story, a bunch of questions jumped out at you. So like, number one, wow, these demons actually talk. Uh, Number two, why in the world do they want to go into pigs? Three, why does Jesus grant their request? And why do they kill the pigs? So those are all like very natural questions that you, you hopefully had. Before answering those questions, I want to make a couple of comments on nomenclature and on vocabulary. Many times in the New Testament, demons are called evil spirits or sometimes unclean spirits. So demons, unclean spirits, evil spirits, they're all the same thing. We won't look at those references. You can do that on your own. Acts 19.12 is one place where you can see this. But I, I think it's very interesting to think about the word spirit for a moment. So when you think of the word spirit, and you hear the term spirit at all, what, what do you think of? So first of all, the Bible says that humans have a spirit. I have a spirit. You have a spirit. We all have a spirit inside of us. And demons happen to be unclean spirits or evil spirits. Now the word spirit communicates, it should communicate something like personhood to you. Demons are not things, they are not forces, they are spirits or persons. And how do we know that other than the the title spirit? Well, the first thing is that the demons possess knowledge and intelligence. So even in this account, when they come to Jesus, they know who he is, right? Hey, you're Jesus, you're the son of God. And they're, they're using intelligence, they're making an inference here, and they're saying, hey, did you come here to torment us? before the time. It's a very interesting phrase there. They're thinking like, they know that they're going to be one day consigned to, to torment. And they're thinking, okay, Jesus, did you come here to do this early? So, right, there's, there's questions that they have. There's intelligence that they're utilizing. Um, so often when, when Jesus encounters a demon, they'll say, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. And, you know, then they ask questions. Why are you here? So they have minds. They have intelligence. They possess a will. They have desires. They, they want to do certain things. So in this passage, very obviously, they want to go into the pigs after Jesus casts them out. So they have desires. They have wishes and wills. The Bible also says that, that demons and evil spirits have emotions. So in, in James, it says that, in James 2, it says that even the demons believe in, and tremble so they can have fear, right? The demons can have these emotions of fear. And interestingly, in verse 31, it says that they're begging Jesus. That's the word that the New King James uses. So again, begging, I think of as like it's an emotional plea. And then, of course, they speak. Okay, so, so demons have the properties of knowledge, intelligence, will, emotions, speech. These are the characteristics of personhood. There's a very good uh, British Greek scholar who's passed away since who uh, has a very good definition of demons that he says they are persons without a body. Persons without a body. And I like that. That, that may be something that you're like, whoa, that sounds a little odd. But, but uh, they have all these attributes. They're called spirits. They have all these things. And they don't have their own body. But apparently they have all those other characteristics. Now, just like humans, we all have different personalities. Some of us are loud, some are quiet, some some of us are, are timid, some of us can fly off a handle. So too, 
demons or spirits have different personalities. And what I want to do is, and this is a good, good part to take notes if you're taking notes, is I'm going to go through just a list. We're not going to read all these passages here because it would take too long, but I'm just going to do a survey from various Bible verses about what demons and evil spirits do. Okay, so first thing, demons make people hurt themselves. So in the parallel account of this in Mark 5, we won't turn to it, but it says that, and always night and day, he, one of these two demoniacs, was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. Cutting himself with stones. So we, we all have heard of people who cut themselves. Uh, that is something that demons inspire people to do, is to hurt themselves. Okay? So demons make people hurt themselves. Second, evil spirits or demons cause convulsion and dramatic disease. Evil spirits cause convulsion and dramatic disease. So in Mark chapter 9, verses 18 and 18 to 22, the description of a boy with epilepsy who the father says he gets thrown by this demon into fire and into water. And I think this is probably what most people think about when they think of demon, demons and the, the activity of demons. They imagine someone like foaming at the mouth and their head's doing a 360 and they're vomiting something green and you know they, they're imagining some kind of dramatic uh, horrific sight that is is a little bit like a, a, a more twisted uh, disgusting form of of what what's described there in mark 9 okay what else do evil spirits do evil spirits cause deformities so there's a very interesting description this is in luke 13 11. It says, and behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. So very interesting. So a spirit of infirmity or a spirit of disease, and she's hunched over for 18 years and she can't lift herself up. So this is not a dramatic condition like epilepsy, but it's this stable chronic condition uh, that has led to a deformity. Evil spirits, next thing evil spirits do is they kill animals. So there's various references to this um, in places like Revelation. But I'll just read you a summary from one author uh, who says, We know that the basic purpose of demon possession is to torture and kill those whom God created, animals or people. very often, and this is extreme, you don't, you don't see hopefully a lot of this in, in the circles that you, you're in, but often when young people get really uh, in, into like very explicitly demonic things, they'll, they'll suddenly be interested in like torturing animals and being cruel to animals and, you know, they'll, they'll light a cat on fire, you know, just things like that. And there's a there's a, a perverse desire to see suffering um, among both humans and animals. Uh, this is this is something that evil spirits want to do, and this predilection towards just cruelty and violence is is pronounced there. Okay, demons. Next, demons can give people supernatural abilities and strength. This is very interesting. Also in Mark five, the parallel account says no one could bind him, not even with chains because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. So 
So sometimes, you know, you see these, these stories, you read these stories of people who have these incredible abilities, these like unbelievable uh, abilities to do these feats of strength. And it's very easy to say like, wow, that's so great. But in the case of this person here, that was actually from demonic power. Next, demons put people outside of good influence. Also in Mark 5, it says, neither could anyone control him or tame him. Basically, they couldn't, he, he had gotten to the point where he was unable to be reasoned with. And demons in general sever the relationships of rational dialogue, and people become almost like animals. They, they just, you just can't connect anymore. And even in, in the passage that we just read, Matthew 8, 28, the New King James translates it, what have we to do with you, Jesus? Uh, in, in Greek, it's tihemin kesoi, and it's, it's something like, what is there between me and you? Like, we have no connection. That's what the, the demons are saying. We have no, there's nothing between us. So they put people outside of good influence. Evil spirits draw people into lying. This is Acts 5.3. This is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, where these, are, these people are baptized, they're professing Christians, and when Peter speaks to them, he says, Satan has filled your heart to lie. And these people weren't foaming at the mouth. They weren't convulsing on the ground. They weren't deformed. They weren't, you know, just ordinary speech there that was lying was, was inspired by, in this case, Satan. Next, evil spirits utilize sensory pleasure or sensory temptation. So way back when in Genesis 3, the, the serpent, like, hey, look at this fruit. It looks really good, right? Like, wow, you, you, don't you want to eat this? Or, or um, the devil coming to Jesus in the desert. He's hungry. Wouldn't some bread, some mouth-watering, delicious bread just be, wouldn't that really hit the spot right now? Uh, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? And you can just, you can just picture the enticement there of, of eating to Jesus who's been fasting for so long. The realm of sensory pleasure and sensory temptation is, I mean, this is, this is Satan's skill. There's, I have no doubt that the world of pornography is filled with demonic characters. I mean, just all around it. Uh, it's uh, getting the, the, the women to be involved, the, the whole industry, the watching of it. Sensory pleasures and sensory temptation. Addictions, anything that's, again, sensory, these, these, these draws back into bodily pleasures. Evil spirits do this. Evil, next, evil spirits stoke pride. So one of the other temptations that Jesus had was to jump off the temple, right? And to say, like, da-da, here I am. Everybody should now, like, bow down to me, and, and I'm just really awesome. I can, I can jump off of the temple here. And... That inducement to pride is what the devil loves to do because he himself is filled with pride. It says, similarly, that Satan induced David to take a census of the people in the Old Testament. And he wanted to show his, his uh, might of numbers there. Next, evil spirits deceive. Okay, and, and this is highlighted in places like 1 Timothy uh, that... Evil spirits have this deceptive power. I think most of us know this. And again, it can come in subtle ways. You know, I, one of my favorite examples here is where Jesus is speaking to Peter 
And Jesus is talking about how he's going to go to the cross. And Peter's like, no, you're not going to go to the cross, Jesus. And then Jesus turns around and says, get behind me, Satan, right? And you think like, again, Peter's not convulsing. He's not foaming at the mouth. He's just giving his own opinion there. But his mind has been deceived by presumably Satan, because Jesus says, get behind me, Satan, um, to, to have the wrong idea of the Messiah. First uh, Timothy is a great book that specifically highlights this deceptive activity. Evil spirits stir up anger. So in Ephesians 4.27, it talks about how uh, when, when someone is angry, that is uh, uh, the, the place of the devil or the foothold of the devil. Evil spirits blind the minds of unbelievers. That's 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 to 4. Evil spirits bring accusation. So you'll just you'll hear this kind of language, like I mentioned, with the schizophrenics. It's often these, these very uh, general statements of dread and no hope. It's a long list, right? There's more. I got several more. Demons bring envy and division. I'll just read you this from... James chapter 3. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Wow. What in the world? So he's saying, like, he's talking about this factionalism that's starting to crop up in the churches there, and he says, that is demonic. Paul makes a very similar argument in Galatians except there he's talking about divisions around ethnic lines. Uh, he talks about the stohia to cosmu, these, these um, elemental spirits. And these forces are, are tearing apart the body. Fellowship with... Okay, next point. Um, uh, demons. Uh, we have fellowship with demons from idolatrous practices. Okay, so... In 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. He's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians. Okay, we're going to talk about this. This is a very important point. There's a lot of confusions about this. But he says this, uh, The things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. The word fellowship there is koinonia. And if you read, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20. He's, he, his argument is that if you go in, to the, to the temple and partic- participate in their activities, you are having koinonia, you are having fellowship with demons. 1 John 5.21, John again is writing to Christians, and he says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. There's a, in both of those, it's very clear that the possibility is there for Christians to be yoked to demons, to evil spirits. A uh, lot of really interesting writing about this from the early church. Tertullian uh, has beautiful, beautiful writing about how he sees the theater as the temple of idols, the temple of demons, and that whole world of theater and drama as, and he just writes so strongly against this. And when Christians enter into that, they're having koinonia, they're having fellowship with demons, demonic power, and just inviting demons to come into your life. Okay, uh, two more. Demons bring an attraction to the realm of death. Where do these people live? Where do these two characters live, these demon-possessed folks? Yeah, they live in a graveyard. They live among tombs. And there's, that's not by accident. Demons love 
the, the realm of death. And one of the, one of the things that it's very easy to grow numb to this, but the world of Hollywood is, it's just, man, they want to showcase death and blood and violence. That's demonic. That is, that is, uh, demons love that space. They love to see things dying and things being injured and things being hurt. They love to, to be in places of death. Finally, evil spirits bring distraction. I'm going to talk more about this in a little bit. But Jesus speaks of, in one of his parables, of the word being sown in different places and the devil coming and snatching away the word. And it's that people just don't meditate on the word. It gets taken away. They get distracted and they're not able to actually consider the word there. Okay, so that's a long list of what demons and evil spirits do. We could probably add more things to that. But that's just a high-level survey there. I, I, want, I want to say a little bit more, though, about some vocabulary here. So I, I was raised in charismatic churches, and I'm very thankful for that. I learned a lot, and I, I, I gained a lot in that. And I've heard dozens, maybe hundreds of sermons where people ask questions like, well, can a Christian be demon-possessed or just oppressed? And like, there's this question, I don't know if people have ever heard sermons like that, and there's like these debates like about... Like, what does this really mean? Well, in fact, that is all really uh, really poor reasoning. So when you actually look at the way the, the Bible is written, particularly when you read these passages in Greek, there's, there's one word that is used again and again, usually in the participle form. A bunch of us are doing some participles this week in our intermediate Greek class. Um, here in this passage, uh, there's a word that is used that is the participle, the participle form of basically, the best way to translate it would be something like to be demonized. Uh, it, it's not, there's no such thing in the Bible where it says you've been possessed by a, by a demon. Like, that doesn't exist. And so people have these debates about how those words get translated in English. And it's really unfortunate. It's like, it's very, very unfortunate. I don't buy any of those distinctions. I think they're all just ridiculous. In fact, so in one dictionary, the, the word demonize in one dictionary says subject to demonic influence. And that's a great definition. Subject to demonic influence. The best way to think about this is like there's a spectrum. So the spectrum would be absolutely no demonic influence. Milder forms, maybe in certain pockets, certain ways of thinking. And then over here, like florid, outright demonic influence that is just captive, taking a person captive. An analogy that I, I like, for me that's helpful at least, is an analogy to parasites. So you can have parasites. The most famous parasite would be like malaria. And you can have a mild case of malaria and it's sort of low grade. You have a fever. And that would be a, on the milder form of that. And then there's other forms of parasites over here. There's, there's a famous parasite that's a brain-eating amoeba that has a fatality of about 100%, near 100%, and it afflicts young people who go swimming in various, various uh, warm, watered places. And then there's things in between, Chagas disease, trypanomyces. There's a whole bunch of things that are in between. But, but in that, there's, you know, we, we tend to think wrongly about demon possession as if the one category is this person who's just, again, like just utterly gripped and they're convulsing. And because of that, we can miss 
the broad spectrum of demonization that's out there. This is very, very important uh, for us to understand that the, the realm of the demonic is far more pervasive, far more pervasive than many people would believe. Okay, so I'm going to give just a few points here, and I think I have four points, and then we'll close. So number one, seeing the world through the lens of spiritual warfare explains human, human behavior far better than purely rational explanations or, or maybe purely physical explanations. Okay, so I'm basically making the claim that to invoke demons, to invoke evil spirits, it explains a lot more of the world. So there's a poet, his name is W.H. Auden, and I love the way that, that he puts it here, as, as, only, as only poets really can do. He says, Though we are under the delusion, or sorry, though we are under the illusion that we live and act, we are in fact lived. Unknown and irrational forces work through us. Did you catch that? Though we are under the illusion that we live and act, we are in fact lived. Unknown and irrational forces work through us. There, there's, there's been, there was a torrent of writing that happened after, the, after World War II and the Holocaust where people were amazed at the kinds of acts that people were committing in the Holocaust like just normal, regular people were able to do things that you would think was scarcely possible. And out of that emerged a renewed interest in maybe we need to understand the world better through a supernatural lens. This extends into much more ordinary things. You know, it's amazing how somebody, if they open their Bible 10 o'clock, they fall asleep 15, 20 minutes later. But you say, like, let's watch a movie or let's do that. They, they'll, man, they'll stay up till 2, 3 in the morning and not bat an eye at that. And you think, like, what? how is this possible that certain things can just captivate someone? And, and you can even, they've, they've done things like this and looked at, like, eyes and things like that. And it's like people are in a trance. Literally, like, it's, they're in a trance. And they can, they can do things that they would normally not... You wouldn't even want to do, but some, somehow they get captivated into that. Very, very good missionaries and writers have noted that one of the main ways that demonization happens, and I want to see if you relate to this, is through distraction, that you will spend way more time on something worldly or something distraction something distracting than on something that is godly or advancing the kingdom. So this is from Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was a missionary to China. So he says this, Satan will always find you something to do when you ought to be occupied about regular prayerful Bible study if it is only arranging a window blind. Okay, so basically he's saying that that there's this task that people know they should do. Like just, hey, get before God, regularly pray, have some meaningful times there. And he says, he says, try it and see if you can go for even a few minutes and see if, 
here's window blinds here, here. Like, oh, wow, this is crooked, right? Maybe I should fix this. And next thing you know, within minutes, you're off in some, in some other place and, and prayer is gone. Hudson Taylor attributed that to the realm of the demonic and to Satan. There's a great book called The Kneeling Christian. Very similar thoughts. I'll read you from this. The Holy Spirit leads us to pray for a brother. We get as far as, as, oh God, bless my brother, and away go our thoughts to the brother, and his affairs and his difficulties, his hopes and fears, and away goes prayer. How hard the devil makes it for us to concentrate our thoughts upon God. This is why we urge people to get a realization of the glory of God and the power of God and the presence of God before offering up any petition. If there were no devil, there would be no difficulty in prayer. But it is the evil one's chief aim to make prayer impossible. Very interesting. Should I read this one here? This is... um, Yeah, I'll read this. This is from the same book, a little bit later in the book. He, God, reveals his mind to those who pray. His Holy Spirit puts puts fresh ideas into the minds of praying people. We are quite aware that the devil and his angels are busy enough putting bad thoughts into our mind. Surely then, God and his holy angels can give us good thoughts. Even poor, weak, sinful men and women can put good thoughts into the minds of others. That is what we try to do in writing. We do not stop to think about what a wonderful thing it is that a few peculiar black marks on this white paper can uplift and inspire or depress and cast down or even convict of sin. But to an untutored savage, it is a stupendous miracle. Moreover, you and I can often read people's thoughts or wishes from an expression on the face or a glance of the eyes. Even thought transference between man and man is commonplace today, and God can in many ways convey his thoughts to us. You you may not think of prayer like that, but as like thought transference between God and humans. And thus, when there is distraction, if you look at your past week and you compare the amount of time that you spent on distractions or media or whatnot and compare that to your time, in steady, focused time in the Word, these authors would make the case that is examples. Of, those are examples of demonization. Okay. Second point: seeing the world through the lens of spiritual warfare gives you much more compassion. Gives you much more compassion. We're going to come to this in some time, in a few months. But there's there's going to be another exorcism in Matthew nine. And right after that exorcism, Jesus looks at the crowds, and this is what he says. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So he does this exorcism, and he turns and looks at the crowds, and he says, my heart's broken. Why is my heart broken? Because I see people, and they look harassed and helpless, harassed by by demons, by evil spirits, helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. They're not properly being led. That is a much easier place to have compassion over someone than simply like, what's wrong with you people? Why are you, why are you not doing this, this, and this? One of my favorite passages from Timothy is in 2 Timothy 2, where Paul says, And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, 
in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Okay, so did you catch that? He says, like, he says, I want, if you call yourself a servant of God, this is what you should be doing. He says, be gentle to everybody, be patient, be humble. And he says, why? Did you hear this? Verse 26 of chapter 2, so powerful. That they may come to their senses. It's like their mind isn't there. Like they just, they can't think. This person can't think. Their mind has been captive. And why? He says, they're in the snare of the devil having been taken, taken captive by him to do his will. Okay? So, wow, I hope you hear this. This is so powerful that when, when you see an, an injured animal, one of my children came to me yesterday or two days ago and said, oh, there's an injured bird in our yard. You're going to come look at this bird and help the bird. And, right? So, like, we all, when you see an animal, like, it's sad, right? Hopefully your, your, your heart breaks when you see this injured animal. If you see an animal caught in a trap, I hope you, you think, like, ah, oh, this doesn't seem right. What Paul is saying here is that that's how you're supposed to look at, at people. <laughs> that they are like an animal caught in a trap, being, having been taken captive by the devil to do as well. See, when you attribute too much to personal agency it makes you blame that person exclusively. And you, you forget about these systemic, higher-order spiritual influences that are really the, the deeper causes that are at play. Uh, it, it, is, it is simply the case, if you look at the vast majority of how people are, the vast majority, it is a product of, I'm not saying that agency isn't there, but most of it is the result of different influences that have been exerted in their lives, good or bad. And when you look at them today, that's, that's the product. And this is good for me because I tend to be a person that I, I tend to be a little bit hard-nosed. Like, what's wrong with you? Come on, come on, you can do this. Right? I tend to be a like, pick-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps type person. But what Paul's saying here is when you actually see the world rightly, when you see the world like Jesus, you see people with compassion because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. They're like people in the snare of the devil. And by the way... This also should entail how you look at yourself. Uh, you know, it's very easy to, to be just relentlessly brutal, to trash talk yourself all the time. And this is not, this is not biblical. Debating if I should tell a little story here. Maybe I might, might, I might later. Okay, next, seeing the world through the lens of spiritual warfare changes how you live in the world. All right, we're going to see this multiple times in Matthew. But when Jesus calls and commissions his disciples, nearly always, nearly always, bound up with that commission is a charge to, to, to exercise, to cast out unclean spirits. Now, it's very easy for people to just say like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip over that part and I'm going to jump to the part about making disciples or baptizing or something like that. But that's not, that's not fair. That's not a legitimate way to read scripture. They're, they're very, very closely packaged together. 
Okay, so we're going to see this. I'm going to jump forward here. You don't have to turn to this. We're going to, we're going to come to this passage in a few weeks. Matthew 10, verse 1. This is when he gathers the 12. Listen to this. This is amazing. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out. That's, that's how Matthew describes the gathering of the 12. Very first phrase that he uses in Matthew 10.1. He calls the 12 disciples to give them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Wow, isn't that interesting? Here's another one. Mark 16, 17. And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. Very first thing that Jesus says there is he says, hey, those who believe, this is what they're going to be doing. They're going to be casting out demons. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Paul enumerates various gifts of the Spirit. And one of those gifts that he mentions is discerning of spirits. Discerning of spirits. People who have the ability to, to tell, is this something that comes from an evil spirit, an unclean spirit, or is it just something from the flesh? There's, there's, uh, another, there's a writer who uh, also passed away uh, from England who makes a brilliant point. And the point is that you can't crucify a demon. You're supposed to cast it out. You can't cast out your flesh. You're supposed to crucify your flesh. So in other words, that if you don't even know what you're dealing with, your, your treatment is going to be wrong. If you're dealing with a demon and you're trying to crucify the demon, that's not the right thing. You're supposed to cast it out. If you're dealing with your flesh, we're told to crucify our flesh. And so this, there's a lot of wisdom in discerning spirits, discerning of spirits. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul gives this really interesting analogy. He's talking about how he's totally dedicated to the gospel. And he says, I don't beat in the air. He says, I don't box in the air, right? And you think about that. Like, you're, you know, somebody who's like punching the air and boxing in the air, it's like you're wasting your time. You're wasting your energy. And what he speaks about there is someone who's intelligent in how they apply their efforts. <coughs> I, I truly believe that one of the great growth areas that many of the churches that we would be affiliated with or part of and ourselves as well is in discerning this and not just saying like, oh yeah, that's just all that demon stuff. That was for the first century. And somehow that doesn't connect to us. Final point. Seeing the world through the lens of spiritual warfare opens your eyes to the need for a savior. Okay, so we're going to see this again and again in Matthew. This is a major theme, that demon exorcism is uniquely associated with the kingdom of God and Jesus' power. So think about it for a moment. Think about all the Old Testament prophets, right? Moses. Moses did some pretty awesome things. Turned the Nile blood, the river Nile into blood. He, he brought down all these plagues. Think about Elijah and the contest at Mount Carmel took this soaking wet altar and fire came down and consumed the sacrifice. Think about Elisha raising people from the dead, multiplying bread. I mean, miracles like resurrections and healings, all those things happen. But do you know what never can be found in the Old Testament? No examples of demon exorcism. They only happen when Jesus comes on the scene 
In this case, this is the very first account in the New Testament here in Matthew 8. And we take it for granted. We don't even think about this in our world today. But when, when this account is given, people reading this for the first time would have said, what in the world is going on? This is incredible. Because they understood, again, demons are people without bodies. These demons have been, had been around for thousands of years, just harassing people, consuming them, destroying them. And that would have been viewed as a far greater exhibition of power than even multiplying bread, because this is combating the very heart of evil. So when they say, when Jesus gives this command, let's go to the other side of the sea, they don't know what they have in store. Jesus is going to take them across the sea and he's going to take them into a realm that was never manifested in the Old Testament. In fact, when Jesus, in, in Matthew's account, he structures it very, very intentionally. If you look at it, you'll see there's all this dialogue that the demons have. And they're almost like, I think it says that they're, let me go back and look. I think it says that they're, yeah, they cried out. So they're like screaming. Um, in, in verse 29, uh, they're crying out, they're screaming. And Jesus, in this whole story, says one word. One word. That's it. Go. And that's the case in Greek. Hupage. That's all he says is one word. And the demon is, is cast out from these, these demons are cast out from these two individuals. It's a lot like that, that hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And there's that line, one little word shall fell him. And here, Jesus manifests that. This, this would have been an astonishing account. People would have said, wait a minute. We've never seen anybody in the Old Testament do this. Here are these, we know from Mark, that there's a legion of demons. There's a whole bunch of these demons inhabiting these two individuals. And Jesus doesn't even cry out. He just says, I think it's Epen. He just says it, and boom, it happens. This is designed to showcase the power of Jesus and the need that we have to access him as Savior. In, in all of the synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where this account is told, the, it's always juxtaposed the stilling of the sea and the exorcism of these individuals here. It's always back to back. There's one author who calls it Jesus over the wild ones. That first, Jesus subdues the wild sea, and then he subdues the wild soul, the demon-possessed soul. Both of these accounts are intended to inspire us that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. It should be something that helps us to appreciate verses like 1 John 3.8 that says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. So when you read accounts of demonization, and, and again, it's better to say demonization or being demonized rather than being possessed by the devil or possessed by a demon, it's very easy to relegate that into a past century and to think, like, I don't, I don't know how to connect to this. But I want you to believe, I want you to incorporate that this is something that affects 
our age as much, and I personally think even more than the first century. I really, really do believe that uh, for reasons that we won't have time to get into right now. So let's think about some of these things that I said before. Activity where people hurt themselves. Dramatic diseases, deformities, harming animals, giving, uh, uh, putting people outside of good influence, lying, sensory pleasure, stoking of pride, deception, anger, blinding the minds of unbelievers, accusatory spirits, envy, division, fellowship with demons coming from idolatrous practices, attractions to the realm of death, distraction. Are these things, can you connect to any of those things on that list? The other analogy that I will, I will give to you, which, again, parasites is one analogy. My second one that I like to use that, that helps me at least is the analogy between a drug dealer and a drug user. Is there culpability on both sides? Yes. But there are many, many stories of, and I, I thought about reading one, maybe I'll do it another time, of, of accounts where people who have no idea what they're experimenting with, what they're playing with, get drawn into just terrible places of captivity and bondage. And you can't explain the phenomenon of how a person gets snared into a life of drugs without the influences and the drug dealers and the people who introduce that into them. I, I applaud, I applaud um, Brother Nathan for his choice to say no to video games and some of those things, which I have no doubt, these hypnotic forces that are just filled with all kinds of demonic influence. Now, few people have the discernment to see that, but it's no doubt the case. It's all around us today. So I want you to to believe and to see and to consider how even in your own life, even in your own life, again, this is a spectrum, and I don't know where you are on the spectrum, how demonization could be affecting you. And most importantly, we need to be recaptivated with Jesus and his power to cleanse and overcome the devil and all of his demons. Let's close in prayer. Father, you have taken us through Jesus across the sea. You have taken us to this place of visibility into a whole realm of of evil and and a realm that can be insidious, a realm that can be deceptive. Father, we want to ask that you would open up our eyes. I want to pray that we would seriously consider that even in different influences right in this room, that it may be much more than just the flesh at work. There may be demonization at work, and the only antidote there is to call upon Jesus' name to deliver us, to save us. I pray, Father, that we would not be blind, that we would not be unaware of Satan's devices. He operates so, so effectively through, through ignorance and fear, and we don't, want to be, we don't want to be unaware of those, those tactics. I pray, Father, that we would again be captivated with these portraits of Jesus as we see our own lives, as we see pride, as we see anger, as we see lust, as we see distraction, as we see attraction to the, the world and its, its uh, forms of entertainment, that we would correctly discern what is going on 
Give us hearts to stand courageously for the truth, to stand humbly before Jesus and ask for his power to be over us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.